What if you were able to sit down for lunch with some of the greatest leaders in the world? What would you ask? What would they say? Welcome to the Lynch with a Leader podcast, where you're invited to join us in learning the spiritual principles behind big success. Here's your host, Mike Lynch. Welcome to episode 27 of the Lynch with a Leader podcast, where we sit down with some of America's greatest leaders and find out how they have led with their fate out in front. If I've never met you before, my name is Mike Lynch, and it is an honor to be on this leadership journey with you as we are all seeking to be the leaders that we can be in the space and the place that God has put us. Well, today is going to be a special day. Today, we get to sit down with one of my heroes, one of the guys I followed growing up, as many of you know, if you're around the North Star world or you listen to our weekend services, that I'm a huge Georgia Tech fan. Well, growing up, patrolling the sidelines for Georgia Tech was Bill Curry. He was building a great dynasty at Georgia Tech when Alabama came and picked him off and he went over and coached at Alabama, coached at Kentucky. He is coached at Georgia State University. But what many remember Coach Curry for were his his playing days. Coach Curry not only played for the legendary Bobby Dodd at Georgia Tech, he played for Vince Lombardi in the NFL. He played for Coach Don Shula. He was a part of the NFC champions in 1968, world champions in 1970, He was a Pro Bowl center in 1971, 1972. He's part of the all-time Baltimore Colt team as a center. He played with Johnny Unitas, Bart Starr. Good night. It's like going up to Ohio and going through the NFL Hall of Fame when you talk about Coach Curry's career. But even more than that, he's a man who loves the Lord with all his heart. So I hope that you will pull up a chair. I hope you'll get a pen, pencil, something to write with, thumbs to type with, or fingers to type with in your computer. And I hope you will listen in to my time with Bill Curry and soak up a little of the wisdom that he has to share with us. Well, Coach Curry, thank you so much for joining me today on Lynch with a Leader. It is an honor to have you. Well, it's my honor, Mike, and thank you for going to all the trouble and uh, getting this set up. And uh, we had one false start, so now we get a chance to go ahead and do this. <laughs> That's a great thing, though. We may be second long, but we're gonna we're gonna get this thing in. We're gonna make it happen. <laughs> yeah. Well, oh, I'm my down, but uh, we, we we're gonna recover it now. Oh, wait, no, don't worry about that a bit. You grew up College Park. We're both from the same side of Atlanta. You grew up down in College Park when you were a high school student in College Park, where did you dream life would take you, Coach? Oh, I only had two dreams. I only thought about two things um, in terms of my own uh, selfish goals uh, as an adolescent boy. Uh, First thing that happened was we got this funny contraption at our house uh, that now dominates the world. It was called television. It was a (laughs) 12-inch Philco with black and white with little rabbit ears. But what I saw was Yogi Berra and Mickey Mantle and Elston Howard and the New York Yankees playing in the World Series, and I was hooked. I still walk around in a Yankee hat, and people say, what in the world have you got that thing on for? I said, well, 
I got addicted when I was 10 years old. And so I was going to pitch for the Yankees. I was going to go to Yankee Stadium. That's the answer to your first question. And the second thing that happened was in the fourth grade, I, I met the smartest student I'd ever seen, uh, and she was cute. Her name was Carolyn Newton. We, I had changed schools down in Newton Estates, Georgia. And by the fifth grade, she was looking a whole lot better and was even smarter. And by the sixth grade, I came home to my father and said, I'm going to marry Carolyn Newton. He said, that is the best idea you have ever had. <laughs> is Carolyn aware of your plans? I said, no, not yet. She's taller than me. She was 5'2", and I was not. I was a short, chubby guy that was always in trouble at school, and she was not interested. But I am very persistent, and uh, so 50% of my dreams came true, the best, most important part. We've been married 55 years, and only one thing kept me out of the major leagues in baseball, and that was talent. <laughs> that is great. I love that. I, I did not know about your love for baseball. That's great. That's, oh, I love baseball more than life. I mean, um, you met Ronnie Jackson at a previous right. uh, time when you and I were together. He and I spent all day, every day, play, we either played baseball up at this little park in our neighborhood or we, if it were raining, we studied baseball and memorized the statistics and collected baseball cards. And he and I were, were very, very close uh, as long as he lived. And uh, that, was, that was another blessing. But baseball was just so much fun to me. So you grew up down in College Park, a different, a different era, of course, than the time we all live in now. Your family was a huge piece of your journey. What was, it, what was your family life like growing up there in College Park? My family life was critical, uh, as it is for everybody. And um, I had the probably rare privilege. God reached me in a, a powerful way because my father had grown up in very difficult circumstances and he was highly competitive. He was a national weightlifting champion in the Olympic lifts and uh, was a hand-to-hand -hand combat instructor at Fort Benning in World War II and a physical training instructor and then came out of the service to Georgia Military Academy, now Woodward. That's right. And became became the weightlifting, boxing, and gymnastics coach. If you go to Woodward today and go to the weight room, the plaque says Major Bill Curry weight room because my father built it wow. uh, in, the, in the late 40s. But he was a very uh, troubled young man, very angry young man, and I was his firstborn son, so mm -hmm. we had a rough time for a few years. And um, <clears throat> I vaguely remember as a little fellow listening to him ridicule the idea of God. He would say things like, God's for weak people. I'm not weak. I don't need that stuff. And um, there were some other coaches on the, on the Georgia Military Academy staff that were just as tough as he was, but they were active Christians. And um, I may be making some of this up, but, but not all of it. I remember discussions. Uh, Colonel Doc McKay who was a football coach, but also an elder in the Presbyterian Church in College Park, he began to talk to my father about a relationship with God, mm -hmm. with Christ, and Dad really wasn't interested. And he said, well, how about if we take little Bill to Sunday school? He said that would be okay. So that was the beginning. That was a crucial 
he had two sons that were my best buddies, so I loved it. So they would pick me up on Sunday mornings, and we'd go to the College Park Presbyterian Church. And um, after a while, Dad said, well, what are they teaching my boy at that place? And uh, Uncle Doc said, Daddy Guts, you come find out. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love that. So he, he was just reeling him in. So Pop goes up to the church, and... Um, not only did he accept Christ, but he became a Sunday school teacher for the next 60 years, and uh, everything changed at our house, everything. Uh, his attitude, his warmth, his loving uh, kindness, um, not that he was perfect, and he never stopped being very competitive, uh, but I saw the power of Christ when I was eight, nine years old, so I've never... In my darkest hours, when I've been the least faithful to God, I've never been able to deny his presence and the reality because I saw it in the Father God that that I had been assigned. Uh, and I saw what it did to my dad and, and did for him. And I wanted that for my life. And I wanted to um, live that out. And I haven't uh, certainly haven't done it uh, as well as I should have. But that's been that was a great gift early in life. Boy, that's so. What do you think? What do you think would be different about you if your dad hadn't have had that experience? If he would have remained the man he was? Because I think so many times men say, well, you know, the wife will get them to church or the grandparents will get them to church or they can go with a friend. I don't need, I'm letting them go. I'll just stay home. I'll do my own thing. What would you say to men about the power of the influence they have over their families? Wow. That's a great question that nobody's ever asked me. I'm 75 years old, but I suspect just having worked with thousands of young males uh, and, and more and more in recent years, females in the athletic arena, because more and more females are active in the sport of football mm -hmm. as uh, in the training rooms and the equipment rooms. And, and that's, a, that's been a big plus for us. So I've, I've ended up being responsible for teaching and training and monitoring academic and spiritual and personal progress for all kinds of young people from every different kind of um, social situation. And the, my best guess uh, is that I would have ended up an angry, bitter, um, frightful person trying to get even with the world for the hard things that had been done to me. Uh, my father, uh, his father had been, um, an alcoholic and had had polio as a child and, and was bitter about it the rest of his life. And that, of course, that affected my dad. So mm. I think I probably would have fallen into that trap. I hope not, but I think I probably would have. Yeah, that it's such a power. I remember hearing Dobson years ago, and uh, it's been years, but they said when a, when a man comes to Christ, there is a 92% chance his family will follow. 92%, which is, um, but it makes sense because yeah, that father, like or not like, that father wields a powerful influence over his family and, and to see what it's done in your journey and how watching your father and those men that poured into him, how it changed you and how that set you on a trajectory that you couldn't have chosen. I mean, you wouldn't have, you wouldn't even have known existed. So you leave College Park, you don't go too far head right up the interstate a little bit to Georgia Tech, and you got to play for the legendary Bobby Dodd. What was your experience like there playing football at Georgia Tech? 
Well, that was another providential thing, I think, um, because uh, my academic counselor called me in <clears throat> and said, Bill, uh, I understand you're considering Georgia Tech. My dad, my dad was a bulldog, so I was supposed to go to Athens. And I just assumed that I would uh, until this uh, strange thing happened. Uh, and my academic counselor called me in and said, are you considering Georgia Tech? And I said, yes, ma'am. She said, don't. I said, don't what? <laughs> she said, don't consider Georgia Tech. You don't have a chance. And she was just doing her job. She said, look, Bill, you're not a stupid boy, but you have frolicked all the way through high school. <laughs> So I thanked her and went down to the library and looked up the word frolic, and I found out she was correct. Uh, and, and that, um, but what she didn't know is that uh, Georgia Tech was the closest campus to a place called Agnes Scott College <laughs> in Decatur, Georgia. Yep. And guess who was going to be at Agnes Scott College? Mm. I had. Still not, I had still not given up on my main dream. It, it looked like the Yankee thing wasn't going to work out, but <laughs> I wasn't giving up on Miss Carolyn. So uh, I, and I did indeed end up at Georgia Tech, and I, I was indeed not prepared for that. Uh, toughest thing I've ever done in life was to get through Georgia Tech. Mm -hmm. But uh, thanks to Coach Dodd, and only because of Coach Dodd's presence, most of us did graduate, something like 92%, even though there were a bunch of us that weren't, weren't qualified. And uh, he loved us so much that he would not allow us to self-destruct. For example, um, he said, I expect you to go to every class. And I thought, well, now, I don't need to go to every class because it's early in the morning and I'm tired. So I missed one class, chemistry, at 8 o'clock in the morning. The next day, I thought, no way they could catch me. There are 100 kids in the class. The next day, my name was on the bulletin board. Bill Curry, report to Grant Field, 5.30 a.m. Wednesday morning, in your running gear. An assistant coach ran me up and down the West Stands about 50 times until I decided that chemistry at 8 o'clock in the morning was a wonderful pursuit. <laughs> it beats the heck out of Grant Field at 5.30 a.m. That, that's a nice little story, but here's what matters. I never missed another class. Mm. My football coach loved me too much to allow me to self-destruct when I could not see my own potential. And in my case, not only did he salvage my opportunity to compete in the classroom at one of the toughest schools in the world, but he also gave me a mission in life because I have tried to follow in his footsteps at every stop, wherever I've had a chance to coach young people. So I'm eternally grateful that God used Coach Dodd as he did with us. What what made him so great? What what were the biggest lessons you took away as you look back and you tried to emulate him through the years? Because I'm a huge Georgia Tech fan, but I was Coach Dodd was before I grew up. My dad was a big tech fan growing up, and he went to Murphy High School. He loved Georgia Tech, so I became a Tech fan like my dad, uh, and he would always talk about Coach Dodd. What made Coach Dodd such a great leader and a great coach? Well, there are several things. Uh, you have to be careful in a case like this not to turn him into a, a saint. He was not a saint. He was, he was an imperfect human being and knew his imperfections, um, but what he did have was several gifts that he learned how to convey. 
um, God blessed him with a charisma. When he walked in a room, the room changed. Mm. Everybody turned and looked at Robert E. Lee Dodd. Uh, how's that for a Southern name? I did not know um, that. I did not know that was his name. Yeah. Wow. He is Robert E. Lee Dodd. But when he walked in the room, if there were a bunch of knucklehead teenagers sitting there throwing spitballs or talking trash or telling dirty jokes, everybody sat up straight and shut up. And we didn't even know why in the beginning. But as we learned, his presence was to be um, critical in our lives. Mm -hmm. Because he used that charisma that he, that he had been given, not only to motivate us to do the right things on the football field, but to do the right things in life. And one of his rules, you couldn't have this rule in today's world. One of his rules was you had to go to Sunday school. And I thought, are you kidding me? I'm living in downtown Atlanta now. He's going to make me go to Sunday school? Yep, sure did. Uh, so how's that for um, wow. in those days? You could have rules like that and get away with it, especially if you were Bobby Dodd. The other one was you are going to go to every class. And uh, the third thing you need to understand is that we're going to love you. We're going to keep you here. A lot of schools in the SEC were running players off every year. They'd sign 60 guys and run off 30 of them just, um, just by pushing them physically till they would quit. Coach Dodd said, we're not going to run off a single person. But you may run yourself off if you cut class or if you misbehave. Does everybody understand? And we all nodded and smiled, and some, most of us got it, but some of us didn't. And uh, like me, it took some reinforcement, but his presence was like that. And mm. it was as if with his system and his relationship with the faculty, we would say, how did he know that I missed that class? How could he possibly know that? Well, he was wired all over that campus. So wow. that was another thing. You couldn't get away. He was everywhere. We call him the whistle, and so when that whistle blew, you jumped. And whether you were on the practice field or whether you were walking to calculus class, uh, we had Saturday morning classes. You might go to calculus and statistics at 8 o'clock, at 9 o'clock, and play Alabama at 2 o'clock, and you better be in those classes. So it was, a, it was a really powerful message to a bunch of us, and it probably saved our, in many cases, saved our lives, and in other cases, saved our capacity to compete in a tough culture. Mm. You know, it, and it says something that all these years later you remember, and you probably can hear that whistle in your in your head and feel his presence walk in a room, and that's the power of a coach. That is the power yeah. of that, in, especially during those formative years. We were talking earlier about Bobby Richardson was my baseball coach in college, and I will be eternally grateful for those three years, three of the four years that he was there while I was there. And not, and not even for things he may have said, but for the presence and for the, the legacy that he left that you just watched and followed in. So you finish up at Georgia Tech. Did you go, well, man, I am a shoe in to go to the NFL. I see my, I know that I'm going to be NFL. It wasn't quite that story for you, was it? I was a 212-pound offensive center, and uh, the NFL had 20 rounds in those days. They only have seven today. And um, my brother-in-law called me on a Sunday morning. I was so clueless. I did not know the NFL was holding a draft. 
Oh my! Goodness. I was a junior. I was a really short junior. So it was, I had finished my fourth season, but I had another season to play. And so Ronnie Newton, my brother-in-law, calls me and wakes me up and says, "Hello, Green Bay Packer." And I hung up on him. I, I, you know, he was always messing with me, and I thought that had to be a joke. And he called back and said, "You need to pick up the paper." But the NFL had a draft yesterday. I said, "They did." <laughs> really? And the Packers drafted you in the 20th round. You're the last draft choice. And I thought, so I was sure he was right. And I had not gotten a letter from the Green Bay Packers. And I didn't, it had never crossed my mind that I might play in the NFL. Um, but sure enough, that had happened. And Lombardi, Vince Lombardi, according to the reliable assistants, had uh, turned to his personnel guy, Pat Pepler. It was two in the morning. He said, Pepler, we've drafted 19 players. I'm exhausted. I'm going to bed. Do something humorous with the 20th selection. And he had disappeared. (laughs) (laughs) So they did. And that's how it happened. So only then did I begin to think that I might have a chance to play in the NFL. It was, I will tell you, it was, it was a great motivation, and I, I pushed myself to train harder and better because of that, and um, it, it had a big impact. But I had a lot of work to do, and um, I was still the—I was still a, very much an undersized player in my whole career. But I used to brag about that. But that's stupid. It, it didn't matter what your size would matter if you could do the job. So you end up in Green Bay after playing for Coach Dodd. It, were Lombard and both of them are legends in coaching, but they probably were very different in their style and approach. Correct. <laughs> you can say that. Yeah, <laughs> I, I was trying to be nice. Say, what what, what was what, what was Lombardi like, and how did it? Was it something that always drew you in, or was it tough for you to get used to his style of coaching? It was very hard. I was. Um, we had been trained by our sick culture. We weren't supposed to like people of color. We weren't supposed to like Yankees. We weren't supposed to like Catholics. We were, it was such a, and unfortunately, we still live in a world of mm. prejudice where uh, people are grouped by whatever categories and ha- are discriminated against. Uh, I will never understand that feature of, of uh, human experience, but I was a victim of it because I had grown up in it and didn't even know it. So I got there, and uh, here was this guy that talked like this year. He was a Catholic. He was a Yankee. He was profane. He screamed a lot. And I never, this is this was my fault, not his fault, but I could never forgive him for not being Bobby Dodd. Mm. Everybody was supposed to be like Coach Dodd in my mind, and I didn't even know that. That was a little psychological twist. But... um Somebody said, you know, coach goes to church every day. I said, I know what, you know, the most, in my experience, the most judgmental bunch of people in the world are white Anglo-Saxon Protestant males. And I'm one of those. We talk a lot about non-judgment. Jesus teaches us we should not judge. And we preach non-judgment, except that we judge everybody. And I already decided, ain't no way Lombardi's a Christian. No way. That was my decision. I went to Bart Starr, who is a wonderful man, to this day, one of the great Christian brothers I've ever had. And I said, Bart, somebody said, Coach goes to church every every day. That ain't that couldn't be true. And Bart said, Oh, it is true. 
The coach is very devout now, Bill. He's a Catholic. He goes to Mass every morning. He's very sincere about his faith. But when you've been working for this man about three weeks, you're going to realize this man needs to go to church every day. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. A very complicated relationship with Coach Lombardi. We didn't see eye to eye. I didn't play well for him, and it wasn't. And I blamed it on him. Mm. Uh, it wasn't his fault. It was my fault. But I did. I couldn't get that. I was too immature and too selfish. When he got rid of me after my second year and sent me to the New Orleans Saints, I was I was crushed and angry, and I said some terrible things about him publicly. That he was abusive. That he didn't care about the players. That he. he and um, and other things, and um, then in 1970, um, a teammate Bob Long called me and he said, "Did you know Coach Lombardi is on his deathbed?" I said, "No." He said, "Bob Bob Long is a wonderful brother." <laughs> he said, "You and I are going to go see him today. I know you're in Washington D.C. He's at Georgetown Hospital." I said, no, we're not, because I wouldn't be allowed in the room. I've shot my mouth off, and I have no business going to see him. Bob said, I'm going to be there in 15 minutes, and if I have to drag you out of that room, you're going to go see him today. Wow. So that, that is a teammate. Mm. Remember that name, Bob Long. I will always remember him for this. So he shamed me uh, into doing what I hope I would have figured out in time, but I don't know that. So we walk in and there's Mrs. Lombardi. And I was terrified to see her because I just knew she was going to be upset with me. And she embraced me immediately. Mm. Nudged me into the room up close to coach's bed where he was gray and emaciated. And um, I just didn't know what to do. His right arm was full of IVs. And um, so I took his left hand and started stammering and stuttering coach I said some things I shouldn't have said and I came today to apologize and to um, let you know that you you've meant a lot to my life he didn't he didn't flinch those eyes were the same the body was emaciated but those eyes fixed on mine and he said you can mean a lot to my life if you'll pray for me oh my goodness so what had the great man done? He had forgiven me when I least deserved it. Mm. Now, is that what Christ is supposed to stand for in our lives? I think so. So once again, <laughs> like it or not, the great man, uh, with his imperfections, um, because of the power of his faith in his darkest hour, he was able to forgive the penitent sinner which is exactly what we're all supposed to do Mm. all the time. Mm. So I was transformed again. That's what happens. We're transformed again. We're in the presence of that level of faith. And my prayer ever since that moment has been when I face that, that day, uh, when my life is about, when this life is about to end, that I can do it with the same grace and the same faith that he did. That is is amazing. That is, did, that time with Lombardi, because I know if you could craft your career, you would have probably spent all the years with the Green Bay Packers, and it would have been wonderful and won lots of Super Bowls. You played in the first Super Bowl, but you would have been with them many more 
but it didn't work out that way. But in some ways, that wasn't the worst thing, was it? Because you ended up with the Colts and had a phenomenal career under another phenomenal coach, Don Shula. Do you look back sometimes and go, man, I didn't see God at work, but he really was working the whole time? I do that every day. Mm. I'm grateful every day uh, for so many things in my life that I that I didn't deserve and that I certainly weren't earned. And of course, there's this, um, when I'm trying to learn to be really good at meditation and we're supposed to select the word, I always end up selecting the same one, grace, mm. grace, because I am the recipient of such grace that I, I really wouldn't be rational to choose anything else if you're Bill Curry. So the grace of um, of God and in Christ in these um, otherwise flawed men, Coach Dodd wasn't perfect, Coach Lombardi wasn't perfect, but to end up with Don Shula is almost an unspeakable gift, uh, whose in his gift happened to be that he would, uh, if he ever decided he believed in a player, he would never give up on me. He gave, I failed over and over and over under Coach Shula, and all he did was give me another chance and would call me in and talk to me about what I needed to do uh, so that I could have a career and to use his praise, I'm going to get some football out of you one way or the other. Wow. Wow. <laughs> so um, it was, it really was a, a wonderful, powerful, it was demanding. It was very, very, every stage of it was incredibly difficult, but that's what I was just thick-headed enough that I needed difficult things just to just to be able to absorb the message. And the message still hasn't been made completely clear. I hope it's clear before I leave this earth, mm-hmm. but I, I, I sit and pray every day to know more what I'm supposed to do next. You know, and th- there's that old phrase we've heard, you know, we live life forward, but we understand it looking backwards. And And it really is true because, you know, playing with Bart Starr, then you go to the Colts and you're with Johnny Unitas, correct? And you're what a what a career for a boy from College Park, Georgia, that wanted to be a Yankee and be near Agnes Scott College. I mean, it really is a it really is an amazing journey God took you on. It really is an amazing journey. Well, it's hard to believe if you if you tried to. If you wrote it in a fictional book, people would laugh at you because yeah. it's just it's impossible. By the way, uh, we got to play in Yankee Stadium. It just wasn't with a round ball. <laughs> That's it was right. The, it was that other. <laughs> Where the, the the other the other ball, the oblong ball. My coach, my coach had to shake me about the middle of the third quarter. He said, "You're not getting after it." I said, well, "I'm still staring at the monuments in center field." I'm not. <laughs> I didn't care about beating the Giants in a football game. I just wanted—I was in Yankee Stadium. That is crazy. And you know, as a player, you were a part of a lot of Super Bowls. But Super Bowls have changed a lot from from when you were in the first one to Super Bowls. What's different for a fan's perspective as you're watching it now? The pageantry and all the things that go on with a NFL Super Bowl. What was different about the Super Bowls when they first started and you were a player in them? Well, one unhealthy aspect, uh, and it's not just the Super Bowl, it's 
sport in general and football specifically in our country, we have turned it into the state religion. Mm. Uh, people expect from their sport, and in this case, football, uh, the same peace that passes all understanding, mm. grace, happiness, joy, fulfillment. They expect it from a silly game that a bunch of overage teenagers run around smashing our face into each other. And if we don't deliver what they think we should, we are cast into hell. Mm. You are an outcast. I mean, Super Week, the thing that most people remember about the Baltimore Colts is that we lost Super Bowl three, not that we won Super Bowl five. Um, and it's as if we had uh, broken God's will in, in the minds of the way people view it. So the answer to your question, and, and this is a complex subject, and I'm treating it, I'm trying not to be uh, too light with it, but people act as if it's a religion now. You're right. And they will prepare for the Super Bowl all year. You know I'm right about that. Oh, yeah. You say oh, it. yeah. They come up and talk to me. If I wear my Packer hat out the door, well, are you guys going to win this year? I don't even know what they're talking about. I haven't mm. been a Packer in 50-something years. <laughs> well, what do you, what do you, that hat you got, oh, well, if Aaron Rodgers stays healthy, I'll have to think of something to say because I don't even know who's on the roster now. How about that? Uh, but it, so the answer to your question, and I'm not being flippant, the difference is it was sort of an experimental game in Super Bowl One. And now at this stage, it's treated as if it were a state religion by a lot of people. I don't, I don't disagree with you one bit. In fact, I was with the Falcons the night before the NFC Championship game against the Niners in 2012. I spoke to the team that night. It had been my third, I think it had been my third time that year, and we had done a series through the life of Nehemiah with them. And I remember standing with Coach Smith that night and having a great conversation. Well, of course, you know, they they lose the next day to the Niners. They don't go to the Super Bowl. And then that that era of Falcons was over. Because, and, and Coach Smith would say, in fact, he said it in a book, it didn't become about the process anymore. It became about the game we didn't finish. And we didn't exactly. make the Super Bowl. And they <laughs> lost the edge that they had created there with the Falcons during his and he, an incredible man like you that gets it. But, you know, we, in fact, we had him in for a, a little conference for coaches here. And we talked about that on stage that, man, that the Super Bowl became the end goal rather than the process to get to the Super Bowl and the, the finishing. It was it's an amazing thing, really is an amazing thing, because it is a spectacle in and of itself now. And so that's that's really interesting. So you go from playing days, and then you get into coaching. I mean, you you got into the college. You did some coaching for a while, then became a head coach. And I remember your days. I was down at many days at Grant Field while you were coaching Georgia Tech. What was the biggest difference between being a player and then getting the coaching hat and and making those decisions and becoming that person, what was that evolution like for you? Well, the simple answer is that when you're a player, you're responsible for one person's performance. When you're a coach, you're responsible for 105 teenage males <laughs> living in downtown Atlanta, and you're responsible for them 24-7, 365. That is the difference. Yeah, uh, I went to Coach Dodd my senior year at Tech, and 
and I asked for an appointment. And of course, I was shaking like a leaf just to walk in his office. Uh, he, he had such presence, and he loved us. We were scared of him. And I said, so I, I said, Coach, I, first of all, I had to go ask him if I could get married. And he said, You gonna marry that Newton girl? And I said, Yes, sir. He said, That'll be just fine. You go ahead. <laughs> and that's when we were juniors. So I went back the next year and said, I think I'd like to be a football coach because I, I, I still didn't have an idea that I was going to play in the NFL. He said, that is the dumbest idea I've ever heard in my life. This is not a good profession. There are only a few good jobs. I want you to get up and get out of here. Take that diploma that you've worked so hard for and go be the president of an airline or something. Don't get in this crazy business. However, if you persist in this madness, you come back, you walk in this door 10 years from now. If you do that, I'll help you get a job coaching. Wow. Thank you. Goodbye. <laughs> well, ironically, I played 10 years in the NFL, exactly 10. And 10 years later, I walked in his office. But after telling everybody in the world I was not going to coach, I realized I could not leave it. What he did tell me in that first meeting, Bill, seriously, if you, if, only coach if you must. If you can't do anything else, mm, mm. then then you ought to be a coach. But if you if you do it for any other reason, you will not survive. And he was right. So I walked back in. And I said, Coach, I'm going to have to do it. He said, Okay, you're nuts, but I'll help you. And he did. So uh, I I uh, my dad was a great coach. Coach Dodd, others. I, I learned from so many great coaches that. Uh, I was privileged to sit at their feet and hopefully learn some things that uh, helped our guys and our young ladies that uh, joined our program in various capacities, uh, help them in some way uh, in each of the dimensions that we tried to approach the spiritual, um, the educational, the athletic, and the social education. And we tried to have some fun. Although there were some moments when it wasn't a lot of fun. <laughs> oh, I'm sure. I am. Um, you know about fickle fan bases. College. I don't know if anybody experiences that more than college world. If you were to yeah. go back and do it again, knowing everything you know now as a player, as a coach, then you then you went into broadcasting. Were phenomenal at ESPN for doing college football and speaking to coaches. If you were to go back and do coaching again, college coaching, anything you would do different knowing what you know now? There are a lot of things I would do different. Um, <clears throat> I would have the same priorities, um, and I got the idea of prioritizing from Coach Lombardi. He kept saying, your religion, your family, and the Green Bay Packers, that's all you'll think of. And he was dead serious about that. I didn't believe him. Uh, my joke when I'm, when I'm making public speeches is that he got confused about the order of the priorities every day, <laughs> but he didn't. He didn't. I'm just mm. saying that in a jocular fashion, and he and he showed that on his deathbed by the way he responded. He could have just said, "Don't let that guy. I don't want to see that guy," but he took that moment to change my life. He didn't have to do that, so I would be more attentive to that aspect. Mm. And, and and when you're coaching in public institutions, you, you can't um, proselytize and you can't evangelize. And I believe in that. I believe that's I believe in the separation of church and state. But I would uh, I would emphasize the values um, 
the permanent values, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. I would do more of that. Oh, we tried to do that. I thought we were incorporating it as we went. The other thing I would do is I'd be more, um, I would spend more time studying the, uh, the reasons that, that that Dodd and Lombardi and Shula, one reason that they were such great coaches is they understood the subtleties of our sport and the people on their team better than the other coaches did. We knew our coach would outcoach the other side. We knew that every week. I would do more of that. I would be better at that if I had a chance to do it over. But yes. you don't get to do do overs. No, but boy, what what an incredible incredible legacy you left. In fact, I was talking to one of your former players. And he was a lineman for you at Georgia Tech, an O-lineman named Ty Young. We were talking about you the other day. In fact, he said he saw you somewhere in Atlanta. You were walking, and I believe he was cycling by and stopped and yelled yeah. across the road at you, Ty, as a financial yeah, he advisor. Yeah, yeah, he said, I don't think Coach Curry knew who I was right off. Well, but, he had that funny helmet on, and I mean, no, I. <laughs> if those guys had any idea of what a great thrill that is to me, I just love seeing them, and uh, yeah, that was that was really funny. I remember specifically where we were when he rode by on his bike. That is so funny, and but he said, Coach Curry. I don't know if he'll ever know the influence he had on shaping who I was because those college years are so formative in deciding who you're going to be in life. And he said, I don't know if Coach Curry will ever know the difference he made in my life. And I know, I'm sure he speaks for hundreds and thousands of young men that played. You go from Georgia Tech to Alabama. How how was that for you? Were you prepared for the uh, difference as far as expectations and what that fan base wanted? Was that something you think you were prepared for when you left Tech? No. I don't think anything can prepare um, an individual for um, a program that has expectations that are um, astronomical. Mm. And Alabama is one of those. Green Bay is one of those. I had had not only played, but I had coached in Green Bay. So I understood that the expectations would be over the moon, but that doesn't, and that prepares the competitor. So for me, just me now, selfish Bill Curry, getting a chance to coach with that expectation, because the first thing that does is that gives you an incredible advantage competitively. Incredible. When your guys run on the field, they know they're going to win. You don't have to teach them that. Well, there were other places I coached. We had to teach them, okay, we got a chance in every game. At Alabama, you don't even have to say, you don't ever have to motivate a player at Alabama. He knows why he's there. Now, class attendance, <laughs> that's a little bit different. <laughs> but we got on that right away, and we, were, we they discovered we're going to go to class. But So I loved coaching those young men because they would lay it on the line for each other all day, every day. What I didn't understand was how hard it would be for my family Mm, mm. to hear things like the radio, the call-in radio shows, or even friends would rush up to my wife at the supermarket and say, did you hear what they wrote about Bill today? And Carolyn would say, no, I really don't want to know. And they'd tell her anyhow. 
Wow. Well, they said that he was. Well, that's that's difficult. Yeah. Um, that's not fair. I, I don't think a husband has a privilege to do that, and that's nobody's fault. I'm not blaming anybody. That's just the that's just the uh, culture. I was walking across the parking lot in July, our second year or third year uh, at Alabama, and a beautiful lady, maybe 85 years old, dressed to the nines charges up to me in her high heels, tears in her eyes, grabs me by the arms, looks me right in the eye and said, Coach, are we going to win this year? We had only won nine games the year before. I said, yes, ma'am, we're going to do better, I promise. But, I mean, it's 365 days a year, and it's everybody. And that's, that's an advantage, but you have to be able to deal with it. So I didn't understand it would be like that, but there was another dimension that I don't talk about much, but I'm going to talk about with you, Mike. When I sat down to do my devotionals, when I got to Tuscaloosa, and I realized what I had gotten us into, our whole family, I began to listen to God in a way I never had before. And he began to speak to me in a way he never did before or since. And he said, I want you to go to the Beatitudes. And I said, why would I want to go to Beatitudes? I'm a football coach. I'm a blessed of the meek. Uh, I mean, actually, it's almost like the only argument I had with God is that, are you serious? Well, not only was he serious, but I had no choice. I became inundated in verses 1 through 16 of the fifth chapter of Matthew every day until it became such an integral part of my life. If nothing else happened to Bill Curry, other than that, for the three years we were at Alabama, it was a great spiritual journey because I was forced to my knees by God himself and forced to learn that. I've shared it with hundreds of thousands of people since then because he gave it to me in a way that I wouldn't have gotten it any other in any other way. So, oh, that's so that's, I don't talk about that a lot because it sounds like spiritual arrogance, but it's really not. It's humility just humbled me. Well, it's it. And it's those, those lessons learned in the tough times are never forgotten. And boy, no. God used that. God used that to shape you. What advice coach would you give to young leaders and young coaches about the importance of their faith being out in front in their journey? in the importance of Christ not being something we just worship and someone we worship on Sundays, but truly shaping them to be who God created them to be. What advice would you give to young coaches and young leaders? The first thing I would want everybody to know is your players are going to know. Whatever you say, whatever you do, your players are going to know what's in your heart because it's going to pop out in the most inappropriate ways at times. And then they're going to know if you are man enough or woman enough to stand up and take the heat and confess that you really screwed up um, and, and apologize. Mm. They're going to know if you take responsibility for your actions or whether you're always blaming someone else. They're going to know if you point fingers and call other teams by bad names in order to get them to be hateful. 
in in their com- competition. They're going to know. And in our country right now, that's the kind of leadership we're getting. Mm. They're going to watch you to see if you are like that as well. If you start pointing fingers, if you start making excuses, if you start blaming somebody else, if you blame the players when you know good and well that it was your call on fourth down that cost you the game, they're going to know. So the first thing I would say to the folks that are going to coach, your players are going to know. That's good. So be authentic. Be who you are and don't try to uh, fool somebody. Um, One of the toughest lessons I had to learn was taught to me by my wife. I came home during our first year or two at Georgia Tech when we were losing every game. And this beautiful person said to me, you're trying to look like Bobby Dodd. Well, I hit the ceiling. I was furious. You know what that means, don't you? She was right. She was right. (laughs) That's exactly right. (laughs) I've I've, uh, been married 27 years. I figured that one out quick. Okay. When you get really mad at something that mama tells you, that's right. She nailed you with it. And sure enough, I was trying to walk like him and talk like him and carry my clipboard like him. You can't. So here's my second bit of advice to young coaches. Don't try to be somebody else. You'll fail. Mm. There's nothing that, nothing that I could have done in a thousand years to be Bobby Dodd. He's the most brilliant game day coach in the history of football. And I am not. I was not, and I ever will be. But I could be the best coach I could be. So that'd be the third thing. Be your best. Mm. Don't give them less than your best and then expect them to give you their best. So that's three simple things. Oh, boy, I love that. And, you know, most recently, I guess it was last year, I heard it for the first time, your, and we'll have a, we'll have that linked on here, but the huddle. And you talked about, you know, it's probably the greatest picture of what America could be because in the huddle, everything changes. Do you think, Coach, that we're going to be able to heal the divide that's that's there in our country as far as um, the racial divide and and all that's there we talked about a little bit earlier about how you grew up and I grew up the same way in Fayetteville um, you know sort of that stereotype way that we were all in, in a in a lane that we were put in do you think there's a healing that can happen there you talk about the huddles the picture of what could be do you think that can happen I know it can um, and um, there, there are all kinds of legitimate suggestions being made by evangelists and by people of various faiths. If we practice our faiths, one th- one thing that uh, if, if we were to look at reality, all the major faith groups share at least one characteristic, and that is the doctrine of love your enemies. Mm. We could start there. People of sincere faith could begin to be kind to other people that are different from us, and that would be a starting place. But I think, uh, frankly, we're going to need great, great leadership, and we need it soon. That's what's happened at every turn when America has been under threat, whether it was in World War situations or Civil War situations. Somebody like Abraham Lincoln came along. Somebody like Dr. Martin Luther King came along. Somebody like Andrew Young came along for the city of Atlanta. Um, Nelson Mandela. We need some great leadership, Mm. not just from one direction, not just from one racial group or one faith group, but all the faith groups. And I believe that that can happen. And I think we must pray for that to happen. And then those of us that have the opportunity to address large groups of people 
we have to tell them the truth, tell them what's going on. Look, this is not acceptable behavior by our leaders. We're not going to tolerate it. We're not going to vote for them. We're not going to back them because this is this is an antithetical to everything Christ stands for. If we're not willing to do that, then I don't know what will happen, but the crumbling will continue. That's mm-hmm. for sure. I love that. I love that. Coach, here you are. <clears throat> Great playing days. Phenomenal family, been married, I believe you said 55 years to your your fifth grade sweetheart. And she didn't know she was your sweetheart yet, but you eventually won her over. You've had an incredible legacy, incredible family. What do you want most said about you? Is it that you were a great football player or that you were a, a great teammate? What what do at the end of all of this, what do you want people to be able to say about Bill Curry? <laughs> wow. I'd lo- I, I would just be thrilled if they'd say, that guy loved me. That guy really loved me. I hope you enjoyed that time with Coach Curry. What a man. What a leader. You know, you listen to him talk, and you go, that's the kind of guy I wanted my son to play for. That's the kind of man I want leading young men. He is everything he was cracked up to be and more. You know, we had done a funeral together. We were talking before we went on the air. We had done a funeral together years ago, and he remembered the gentleman we did the funeral for, his mom, and he remembered him, and we talked about it and talked about that time that we had spent together and the friendship that he had had with that young man that had become a grown man. Well, that's the kind of guy Coach Curry is. He's personal. He's down to earth. He never believed all his press clippings. He never bought into all the hype about who he was. He's a man who loves his family, who loves the Lord, and he loves people. Can you say any more than that? You know, at the end of every episode, I try to think of a word that describes that person. Here's my word for Coach Curry. He's kind. He is a kind man. He's gentle, but yet strong. You know, and, and I remember growing up, my pastor, Ike, growing up, used to use a phrase. He said, humility is power under control. That's Coach Curry. He is a humble man who loves the Lord, and he loves other people. Thank you, Coach Curry, for spending that time with us, because I can promise you this. If nobody else grew from it, I grew from it, and I am a better person today because of my time with Coach Curry. Boy, that was good. Well, in our next podcast, in episode 28, we get to sit down with a new author. He's a pastor of a great church in New Jersey, Terry Smith. He's written a book called The Hospitable Leader. I'm telling you, I got an advanced copy that Terry and I walked through, and it is a great book for anyone in the people business. And I don't know anybody that I know that's in leadership at a school, leadership in a corporation, leadership in a church that's not in the people business. You are going to love my time with Terry Smith. You may not know Terry. I did not know. I'd heard of him. I didn't know Pastor Terry Smith. But after getting off the phone with him, boy, I sure am glad I got to meet him. And we'll be talking to him in episode 28. But until then, if this podcast is a blessing to you, Man, go to iTunes or Stitcher and leave a review. It helps others find their way to us and helps others become the leader that they were created to be in the space and the place that God has put them. 
Thanks again for joining me today. And until next time, I can't wait to see all the traction you get being that leader that God created you to be. Thank you for listening to the Lynch with a Leader podcast with your host, Mike Lynch. If you enjoyed this episode, you can help more people hear it by subscribing and leaving a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you may be listening. For full episode notes and more spiritual leadership resources, visit MikeLynch.com.